The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Abusing power for personal gain. Welcome to my weekly report for Thursday, November 14th, 2019. Thank you for listening to this independent news, which appreciates your support through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. As has often been the case over these past three years in these reports, you're about to hear a lot of information over the next hour or so. For some, it's an overload, too much information, as if there were such a thing. This is important information that hopefully gives depth and understanding to what's going on around us, making us better informed and more effective citizens. But it's really very simple in the end. The president abused his powers for personal gain. See, it went by so quickly you could almost miss it. The president abused his powers for personal gain. Now, a claim as bold as that needs some explanation. The devil, as they say, is in the details. The details include breaking election laws, threatening to leave an important ally defenseless against Russia, and obstruction of justice. It'd have to be something important, along the lines of Nixon. It's not bad enough at this point. Those are the words of a Republican voter from a Kansas City suburb to a reporter from The Guardian. Never mind that Nixon was covering up a botched burglary while Trump used taxpayer money to extort a foreign country to help his re-election campaign by investigating Joe Biden. Steve Isley of Johnson County, Kansas, is a Trump voter who, like so many other Trump voters, believes all Democrats are socialists, and he's so far unconvinced that Trump's done anything impeachable. Steve Isley is one of millions who may or may not change their minds after this week's and next week's televised public impeachment hearings. A Fox News Channel poll shows us there's a chance. That Fox poll shows that nearly half the voters in this country are against impeachment. But the poll also shows that one-third of that half is keeping an open mind, bracing themselves for what comes out of these hearings. Democrats are banking on the hearings to dramatically increase the number of Americans who favor ejecting Trump from the White House. The Guardian also spoke to Kansan Bill Harris, who says, I vote Republican or I don't vote. He said of the impeachment, this is all political. Nancy Pelosi is out to get Trump. Anyone can see that. That's Washington. And then Harris added, but I do think he has questions to answer. We need to see the evidence. I'm not against that. This week, Harris and the rest of the country began to see and hear evidence from first-hand witnesses, eyewitnesses testifying for the impeachment hearings that went on the air yesterday. With the voice of an anchorman, Ambassador Bill Taylor, a Bronze Star veteran and the top U.S. official in Ukraine, talked about why Ukraine matters to the U.S., its importance in fending off Russian aggression, and the thousands of lives Ukraine has lost toward that end. Ukraine, he emphasized, is strategically important to U.S. national security and desperately needs our help. Taylor told Congress in yesterday's first public session that he was alarmed by a second, highly irregular diplomatic channel between the U.S. and Ukraine, one led by Rudy Giuliani at the direction of the president, that pursued a policy counter to the official U.S. policy. He said Giuliani's efforts undermined U.S. national security with a campaign of false information peddled by a corrupt former Ukrainian prosecutor. And then came an unexpected bombshell a new revelation by Taylor that one of his aides had overheard Trump himself in a loud cell phone call ask about the investigations, meaning the investigations Trump wanted into the Bidens in exchange for desperately needed military aid for a vulnerable ally in conflict with the United States' national security interests. 
Trump had asked this in an overheard call with his ambassador and campaign donor, Gordon Sondland, who then told the president he'd get his investigations. The person who overheard Trump is David Holmes, a U.S. embassy official in Ukraine, and he will testify tomorrow behind closed doors. And then another bombshell. Ambassador Taylor's testimony that he'd been told by Trump-appointed Ambassador Gordon Sondland that Trump cared more about the Biden investigation than about protecting Ukraine. None of this, said Taylor, is normal. It's one thing to try to leverage a meeting in the White House, said Taylor, but it's another thing to try to leverage security assistance. It's much more alarming. State Department official George Kent testified that efforts to, quote, gin up politically motivated investigations were infecting the U.S. policy on Ukraine. He testified that it was Trump's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, who led the effort to press Ukraine to investigate Trump's rivals. George Kent expressed alarm at what he calls a campaign to smear American officials, leading to the firing of Ambassador Marie Yovanovitch. Kent testified that it was unfortunate to watch some Americans, including those aligned with corrupt Ukrainians, pursue private agendas and attack dedicated public servants who pursued official U.S. national interests. Kent proposed that investigations of corruption tend to, quote, piss off corrupt people. Republicans called yesterday's testimony unreliable hearsay. Taylor and Kent have each served the U.S. for at least 50 years, and they have served presidents from both parties. You'll hear more about the Republican defense, or lack thereof, later in this report. But in yesterday's first public session, Ranking Committee member Devin Nunes called the hearings a sham and a low-rent sequel to the Russia investigation. Nunes called the hearings a pitiful finale to Democratic attempts to overturn the 2016 election. He talked of cult-like Democrat-led hearings in the basement. Nunes repeated Trump's conspiracy theory claim that Ukraine worked with the Clinton campaign in 2016 and that Ukraine might have the Democrats' email server. There is no evidence that Ukraine played any role in the 2016 election. Diplomats and national security experts have testified to that repeatedly to Congress under oath. What Nunes did not do was defend the president. What Republican committee member Jim Jordan did was what he's known for, talking fast, interrupting witnesses and colleagues and insulting the witnesses by barking, and you're their star witness? Jordan succeeded in making the usually steady Bill Taylor hesitate and stammer, but Taylor managed to stick to his testimony. Republicans argued that Ukraine's President Zelensky denied he'd been pressured, but Adam Schiff got the witness to agree that Zelensky had reason to fear that he'd lose that desperately needed aid if he implicated the U.S. president. Republicans also argued that since Ukraine did eventually get its money and since it did not launch that investigation of Joe Biden, there was no crime. As others have pointed out, if you try to rob a bank and fail, you have still tried to rob a bank. You have still broken the law. And in truth, the Ukraine money was released on September 11th, less than 48 hours after the whistleblower complaint had dropped and Congress had launched its impeachment inquiry. Timing is key. Republicans also tried and failed in their demands to hear from the whistleblower, whose testimony is no longer needed, having been repeatedly confirmed. While Democrats used an organized prosecutorial approach in yesterday's hearing, Republicans were scattershot, jumping from an offense of unproven conspiracy theories to a defense there was no crime that the bank never got robbed. And that was just the first day. There's much more testimony to come. 
Tomorrow, it will come behind closed doors from the aforementioned David Holmes, who overheard Trump ask Gordon Sondland about the investigations, indicating Trump's direct involvement in the Ukraine shakedown. And there will be public testimony from former ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yovanovitch, who was the target of that smear campaign by Rudy Giuliani and his pals Lev and Igor, and ultimately the president. Yovanovitch was one of the long-serving, nonpartisan career professionals, moved out of the way for Giuliani and Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman to pursue their own separate Ukraine policy, one that ran counter to the interest of the United States, but very much to the interest of Donald Trump's political career. And next week, we'll hear from eight more witnesses, including Purple Heart veteran Alex Vindman and Tim Morrison of the National Security Council, Mike Pence aide Jennifer Williams, David Hale from the State Department, former White House Russia expert Fiona Hill, and special envoy to Ukraine Kurt Volker. We'll hear from Trump-appointed Ambassador Gordon Sondland and Laura Cooper, the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense. Next week's hearings will be held on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. History will remember the bipartisan diplomats, nonpartisan intelligence officers, and other apolitical civil servants who rose up against the Trump presidency in these very partisan times. They are also the stars of this week's public testimony. They appear against their usual instinct for anonymity, at great personal peril, and against orders from the President of the United States. Some have already lost or thrown away their long careers of dedicated public service in what they believe was a necessary move to save democracy. Even former Secretary of State Rex Tillerson and former White House Chief of Staff John Kelly were resisting the president, trying to undermine Trump's efforts because they believed it might save the country, according to a book by former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley. Tillerson and Kelly had both risked their jobs out of a deep concern about Trump's policies and his mental state. Normally quiet and working behind the scenes, rank-and-file diplomats, meanwhile, have been the target of death threats, and they've had to shell out thousands of dollars each to hire lawyers to guide them safely through these congressional hearings. Being normally quiet and apolitical, they have tried, or had tried, to stay out of this. But after three years of being ignored and insulted, and after seeing a president make personal political use of the normally nonpartisan foreign policy, and being inspired by their colleagues who've broken their silence and bravely come forward, they're speaking up in greater numbers now. The New York Times reports that the Foreign Service officers at the State Department have been worried, and still are, but that their outlook has turned from shame to pride pride in their fellow officers. Trained to work out of the limelight, they're now proud the world might know that diplomats are as nonpartisan and as dedicated as those who serve through the military. The Times says that on closed Facebook groups and encrypted apps, these diplomats are united in resistance to what they're witnessing in this administration. They use the hashtag GoMasha as a rallying cry in honor of former Ukrainian Ambassador Marie Yovanovitch, fired after becoming a target of Trump's shadow Secretary of State Rudy Giuliani, but a key witness in tomorrow's impeachment hearing. And the diplomatic corps has also put its money where its morals are, the Times reporting donations of up to $10,000 in a single day to help colleagues who've had to hire lawyers for guidance in their congressional testimony. Still, many of them still hold jobs in the State Department where morale is at an all-time low and where those who serve there have lost confidence in their leaders, not just Trump, but the actual Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, 
who failed to publicly support his own ambassador, Marie Masha Yovanovitch. Many once-dedicated Foreign Service officers have decided to retire early in the greatest numbers we have ever seen. Others are just laying low, waiting for the storm to pass. Over the weekend, we got a look at the recent closed-door testimony of two key officials on the National Security Council, the president's former top Russia advisor Fiona Hill and Purple Heart recipient Alex Vindman, an active-duty lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army. We learned from Vindman and Hill that acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney is deeply implicated in the Ukraine scandal, coordinating this bribery or extortion effort that's too often minimized as a quid pro quo. We learned from Fiona Hill that former National Security Advisor John Bolton was furious to learn that a White House meeting for Ukraine's new president was contingent on getting Ukrainian investigations into Trump's political enemies here in the U.S. Hill testified that Bolton instructed her to report what they had just witnessed in a July meeting with Ukrainian officials present. Trump campaign donor turned Ambassador Gordon Sondland had just leaned over the table to tell the Ukrainians, quote, we have an agreement with the chief of staff for a meeting if these investigations start. Fiona Hill told lawmakers of a Giuliani campaign of conspiracy theories about Ukraine, and she talked about what she'd heard in Trump's now infamous phone call to Zelensky. I sat in on an awful lot of calls, and I have not seen anything like this, Hill testified, adding, I was just shocked. Perhaps most importantly, Hill pushed back hard against Republican attempts to make the impeachment about Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton. I'm sorry to get testy about this back and forth, Hill said to the Republican lawmakers who were grilling her. And then she began her speech. I'm really worried about these conspiracy theories, and I'm worried all of you are going down a rabbit hole looking for things that are not going to be at all helpful to the American people or to our election in 2020. You just had a bipartisan report from the Senate about the risk there is to our elections. If we have people running around and chasing rabbit holes because Rudy Giuliani or others have been feeding information to Politico, we are not going to be prepared as a country to push back on this again. The Russians thrive on disinformation, said Hill. We're in peril. Russians attacked us in 2015. They're now writing the script for others to do the same. End quote. Like others, and better than most, Fiona Hill had spoken truth to power at great personal, professional risk. Next week, she testifies publicly. We learned from Colonel Alexander Vindman that politically appointed Ambassador Gordon Sondland was lying to Congress when Sondland said he knew only about a corruption investigation that he didn't know it was about the Bidens. From the Colonel's testimony, question, what did you hear Sondland say, Vindman, that the Ukrainians would have to deliver an investigation into the Bidens? Question, so he mentioned the word Bidens? Vindman, to the best of my recollection, yes. Colonel Vindman has incredible recollection since he takes careful notes about each meeting he attends right after the meeting. He testifies publicly next week. The day before Vindman and Hill's transcripts were released, we saw the transcripts from testimony by George Kent, the senior State Department official in charge of the nation's policy on Ukraine, the one who testified publicly yesterday. Astonishingly, George Kent was one of the career professionals cut out of that policy-making, nearly since the start of the Trump administration. He says he was told to keep his head down and to lower his profile in anything having to do with Ukraine, even though he is the State Department official who was supposedly in charge of the nation's policy on Ukraine. It was George Kent who told Congress behind closed doors that Trump's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, waged what Kent called a campaign of lies about former Ambassador Marie Yovanovitch, 
the aforementioned Masha, who is now the center of so much diplomatic pride. It was George Kent who told Congress that Trump, quote, wanted nothing less than President Zelensky to go to a microphone and say, investigation, Biden, and Clinton. Three little words Trump believed would devastate the Democratic Party and elevate him into a second term. Now, to get those three things, we now know through testimony that Trump withheld from Ukraine's president a White House meeting and $391 million in taxpayer dollars Congress had ordered be used to help our ally in its ongoing war against Russian aggression. We have also learned that Ukraine's President Zelensky almost went to that microphone and almost said those three little words. In early September, it came time for Zelensky to decide whether to keep Trump happy by saying what Zelensky did not want to say or risk losing hundreds of millions of dollars in much-needed military aid. The New York Times reports Zelensky decided to bite the bullet and his staff began arranging an appearance on CNN with Fareed Zakaria. But Zelensky never made that appearance. Suddenly, the whistleblower's complaint was out, and the money that had been withheld finally went through. And now we know why it did, and how. Trump says it was he who ordered that money released on September 11th, but we now know that at least part of the money was released a few days before that. Testimony made public on Tuesday of this week from officials at the Pentagon and the State Department pulled the rug out from under a crucial part of Trump's impeachment defense. Deputy Assistant Defense Secretary Laura Cooper, who testifies publicly next week, testified behind closed doors there was a high-level discussion at the Pentagon about whether withholding money from Ukraine was legal. They concluded it wasn't. Cooper says that in a meeting on July 23rd, the Office of Management and Budget told them, quote, the White House Chief of Staff has conveyed that the President has concerns about Ukraine and Ukraine security assistance. That is when it became clear to Cooper and others that the President was personally behind the withholding. It should also be noted that the President's Chief of Staff and the head of the OMB are the same guy, Mick Mulvaney. Separately, officials at the State Department were concerned about the legality of withholding those funds, and they were concerned about the impact it would have on U.S. national security. Ms. Cooper testified that all of the agencies involved in Ukraine matters were united in the view that this financial assistance was essential, crucial, vital. Thanks to the testimony of acting U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine Bill Taylor, we know that at one point, efforts to turn around that decision were thwarted because White House officials were too busy scrambling to carry out Trump's orders on the idea of buying Greenland. Lieutenant Colonel Vindman of the National Security Council had testified behind closed doors that John Bolton, Mike Pompeo, and Defense Secretary Mark Esper all recommended that the money be released as far back as August 15th. Mick Mulvaney's budget office argued that it was up to them to release or not release the money, but the State Department's lawyer disagreed and decided to disregard the OMB and to release the money anyway. That $391 million in aid for Ukraine's fight against Russia had been authorized by Congress, and as September and the government's fiscal year began to fade away, lawmakers became increasingly concerned that Ukraine still hadn't gotten its money. People at the Pentagon were concerned. People at the State Department were concerned. If the money hadn't been spent by September 30th, that aid to Ukraine would simply evaporate forever. And what we now know is that it was then National Security Advisor John Bolton 
who told the State Department to release that money, and it did. That is how the money got through, despite efforts by Trump, Mick Mulvaney, Rudy Giuliani, and his pals Lev and Igor to hold it as ransom in a bribery or extortion scheme to help Trump's 2020 campaign. Let's take a moment here to talk about Lev and Igor, who've been indicted on federal felony charges and their relationship with Donald Trump. Trump has recently, repeatedly, and adamantly claimed he does not know them. He's lying again. He does know them. CNN has documented at least 10 encounters between Trump and Giuliani's pals Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman, from his inauguration galas to a White House party and an intimate dinner. The three of them have been photographed posing together at least seven times. It's possible, explained Trump, I have a picture with them because I have a picture with everybody. Trump's been with Lev and Igor on March 7, 2014 at his Doral Resort in Miami, again there on October 23, 2015, at a fundraiser elsewhere in Florida in October of 2016, at an Orlando rally on December 16, 2016, and a pre-inauguration gala in D.C. on January 19, 2017, at Mar-a-Lago on March 7th of last year, at the end of April 2018, at Trump's D.C. hotel, again at that hotel on June 18th and 19th of last year, at a Nevada rally on October 20th, 2018, and at a Hanukkah party in the White House on December 6th, 2018. When asked about his relationship with Lev and Igor this week, Trump told CNN, I don't know them. I don't know about them. I don't know what they do, but I don't know. Maybe they were clients of Rudy. You'd have to ask Rudy. I don't know. In that one answer, Trump repeated the lie five times that he does not know Lev and Igor. But he clearly does. And now Lev Parnas says that at that intimate Hanukkah dinner with Igor and Trump and Rudy and Mike Pence, he and Igor discussed with the president Ukraine. He says they're the ones who told Trump to fire Ukraine Ambassador Marie Yovanovitch because she was unfriendly to the president and his agenda. Later, in that infamous phone call with Ukraine's president, Trump would call Yovanovitch bad news. We also heard this week that former National Security Advisor John Bolton can offer a lot of new testimony, new information from meetings he says we don't yet know about and that Bolton is willing to defy the president's order not to testify if a court rules in his lawsuit that a congressional subpoena outranks a presidential order. In the meantime, this important witness would like you to know he'll spill it all in a book he's writing that's due out next year. The court battle over whether Bolton should testify buys him some time to get some writing done. We also now know that Ukraine knew the money was being held back long before the rest of us did. As a key part of Trump's defense, Republicans have argued Ukraine couldn't be a victim of a shakedown because it didn't know until late August when the rest of us found out that the money was being held back. If the Ukrainians didn't know, they argued, there could be no quid pro quo, no this for that, no extortion. But the Ukrainians did know. Ukraine specialist at the State Department, Catherine Croft, testified that Ukrainians knew the money was frozen on July 18th, a week before Trump's phone call to Volodymyr Zelensky that involved asking a political favor from Ukraine after its president had asked about military aid. And as reported here last week, Ukraine found out during Trump's first year in office that it had to perform certain services if it expected to keep getting help from its most important ally. 
In late 2017, the Office of Management and Budget in the Trump White House withheld Javelin anti-tank missiles from Ukraine until Ukraine stopped cooperating with the Mueller probe and ended its own investigations into Trump's campaign manager, Paul Manafort. By May of 2018, Ukraine had dropped its anti-corruption work and got those missiles. We now know after a visit from Rudy Giuliani associate Lev Parnas of Lev and Igor fame. Lev's lawyer says his client got his marching orders from Rudy Giuliani, who he says Lev believes got his marching orders from Donald Trump. Interesting, Giuliani does not pay Lev and Igor for the work they do for him. Instead, Lev and Igor pay Giuliani. We still haven't gotten to the bottom of that. But after Lev's visit, Ukraine got its missiles and an official state visit from Vice President Mike Pence to attend the inauguration of Ukraine's new president. Attendance by Trump was not on the table as he held out for something more. State Department official Christopher Anderson told Congress that in May of this year, he was told of a meeting in which Trump said the Ukrainians had tried to take him down, reflecting a grudge based on a conspiracy theory. While every other government agency involved in Ukraine policy was anxious to give Ukraine its money, only one objected, the president's Office of Management and Budget, led by Mick Mulvaney. Quoting from the testimony of the State Department's Catherine Croft, the lone objector on the Javelin decision was OMB. She added that not giving the missiles to Ukraine was in Russia's interests. And there's Russia again. The fact-finding, meanwhile, continues about Russia's interference in the 2016 election in the form of the criminal trial of Trump confidant and political dirty trickster Roger Stone. We've already heard from former Trump campaign manager Steve Bannon, who, insisting he was only testifying because he was subpoenaed, told a court that the campaign viewed Roger Stone as a link to WikiLeaks, which published the stolen Democratic emails, the emails stolen by Russia. Bannon testified that Stone had implied that WikiLeaks had material that would help Trump and possibly hurt Clinton's chances. Bannon says he and Stone talked at least a dozen times and that when Trump was trailing in the polls, Stone told him he knew how Trump could win, but, quote, it ain't pretty. And then on Tuesday of this week, we heard in Stone's trial from former Deputy Trump campaign manager Rick Gates, who testified that Trump told him more information would be coming, meaning more stolen emails. That indicates the president had personal knowledge of his campaign's dealings with WikiLeaks that brought together the common interests of both Trump's campaign and Russia. Roger Stone's trial is now in its closing arguments. We are also hearing now about the role of Energy Secretary Rick Perry in the Ukraine scandal. While Ukraine desperately needed that promised military aid, while it was being extorted to announce and conduct an investigation based on a disproven conspiracy theory about the Bidens and another about the Democrats in the 2016 election, Ukraine was also being asked for a favor by Rick Perry. Knowing Ukraine was being pressured by Giuliani and his men, Perry suggested that one of the men best qualified to advise the country's new president on the oil and gas industry just happens to be an American oil man who has, for many years, donated generously to Rick Perry's various political campaigns. Michael Blazer had even loaned Perry his personal jet for Perry's failed 2015 presidential campaign. Blazer and his partner, by the way, have just been awarded a 50-year contract to drill for oil and gas on government land 
in Ukraine. Disrupt, distract, and disinform. That appears to be the 3D strategy of congressional Republicans as they try to defend the indefensible at Trump's impeachment hearings. The disruptions came as Florida Republican Matt Gates repeatedly stormed closed-door hearings he's not authorized to attend. And as a good example of disinformation, Gates and others have claimed that Republicans have been shut out of these secret hearings when, as the transcripts show, Republicans were present and used every bit of the equal time they'd been allotted. And we've now seen Republicans use their time to pursue questions about Joe Biden and his son and about the same disproven conspiracy theories pursued by Rudy Giuliani on behalf of the president, including that Democrats colluded with Ukraine to interfere in the 2016 election. Therein lay both disinformation and distraction, an attempt to draw attention away from what the president did to point instead to Trump's supposed anti-corruption efforts. These transcripts made available to us made clear how Republicans plan to fight the impeachment of their president. They go after the witnesses, in one case asking Marie Ivanovich about her national heritage, trying to make impeachment witnesses appear biased. Again, as part of the distract defense, one Republican asked Yovanovitch if she knew anything about the website that's accused a pizza place in D.C. of being the home of a ring of Democratic pedophiles. The transcripts also show Republicans asking about the Clinton Foundation and former Obama administration officials and a handful of other things that have nothing to do with the Ukraine scandal impeachment of Donald Trump. During his turn in the closed-door sessions, Republican Devin Nunes used his time to ask befuddled witnesses about the origins of the Russia investigation and the Steele dossier. Quoting the Washington Post, most witnesses told Nunes they had no idea what he was talking about. Another Republican approach appears to be ready to throw three of Trump's deputies under the bus to spare Trump. The three are the aforementioned Gordon Sondland, acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney, and the president's current personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani. Some Republicans are throwing doubts on whether Sondland, Mulvaney, and Giuliani are really representing the president or rogue actors pursuing their own agendas. But the Washington Post reports that Mulvaney was ordered to withhold the Ukraine money personally by the president a week before that infamous July 25th call to the Zelensky. And Giuliani had already confessed publicly and proudly that he was also acting at the direction of Donald Trump. And Sondland testified that he got his marching orders from Giuliani about what the president wanted out of Ukraine. And now, thanks to that overheard phone call, we know Sondland was also taking orders directly from the president. But the Republican strategy appears to also involve fall guys like Mulvaney, Sondland, and Giuliani if it'll keep their president from being driven out of office. On Sunday... Republicans released their wish list for the witnesses they would like to call in these public impeachment hearings. The list included Joe Biden's son, Hunter, and the anonymous whistleblower whose complaint has already been corroborated by witnesses with faces, voices, and documents. Because the whistleblower's claims have been confirmed and because the law requires they be protected to protect the integrity of government, there is only one reason now for exposing the whistleblower. Revenge to harm them, to try to destroy their reputation, to open them up to public ridicule and perhaps physical harm, to make them a target. As for the president's claims of a right to meet his accuser, that only applies in criminal trials, and an impeachment inquiry is not a criminal trial. The president's lawyers will have a chance to defend him against the whistleblower's claims, both in the House, 
during the Articles of Impeachment phase and in the Senate during the impeachment trial. Government officials, elected or not, along with the ethical news media, have worked to keep the whistleblower's name out of public view. But for more than a month, Trump allies have labored to expose the whistleblower. The extreme right-wing media outlet Breitbart published a name that got retweeted by both the president and Donald Trump Jr., and in just 24 hours, Jr.'s tweet got 150,000 retweets and several hundred thousand views. A religious right businessman from North Carolina paid a thousand bucks for ads on Facebook, spreading the supposed whistleblower's name several hundred thousand more times. Both he and Facebook may have broken the law if a court decides that the purpose of those ads was to intimidate, harass, or threaten anyone, according to a former State Department official who talked to the Washington Post. Those ads have since been removed by Facebook, but millions of people around the world have now seen that name. At a Trump rally, Republican Congressman Rand Paul of Kentucky called on mainstream news media to publish the name, a comment so well-liked by Russia it was quoted in tweets by the Russian news agencies RT and Sputnik. While Facebook and YouTube were busily blocking posts aimed at exposing the whistleblower, Twitter was letting them fly. Trump's social media summit earlier this year was paying off. His U.S. supporters in that field gathered at the White House earlier this year to coordinate on behalf of the president. Several names of alleged whistleblowers have surfaced, but one name's been circulating since early October when it was published by the Trump supporter who pushed the debunked conspiracy theory about a Democratic child sex abuse ring operating out of a Washington, D.C. pizza parlor. On October 2nd, a lawyer for the whistleblower got an email with the subject line, A Bullet in Your Head. The lawyer reported it to the FBI, and then came another email that read, Die, you filthy scum. And then more emails about the whistleblower, saying Vladimir Putin would, quote, would have already shot scum like this. The whistleblower's lawyer became so concerned he shot off a cease and desist letter to White House lawyer Pat Cipollone that read, Let me be clear. Should any harm befall my suspected whistleblower or their family, the blame will rest squarely with your client, meaning the president. Right-wing social media accounts have been prolifically sharing a couple of photos that claim to show the whistleblower. But neither photo is the whistleblower. The person in those photos left government well before anything mentioned to the whistleblower's complaint. Best wishes to the person in those pics that have been shared thousands of times. Best wishes to them in light of the social media wrath they have since faced and the warnings to watch his back and that he is as good as done for. And there have been other victims of the right-wing guessing game that strikes fear into any possible future whistleblowers. And now Republicans want the real whistleblower to come forward and testify because what could possibly go wrong? Their witness wish list further made clear Republican intentions to continue to disrupt, distract, and disinform in an effort to defend something that cannot be defended. That is the width and breadth of the Republican strategy, a strategy that is as self-contradicting as it is inconsistent. Adam Schiff 
who's currently leading the impeachment hearing, said he would consider the Republican witness request, but made it clear the inquiry would, quote, not serve as a vehicle to undertake the same sham investigations into the Bidens or 2016. Schiff said he would also not allow the Republicans to facilitate the president's efforts to threaten, intimidate, and retaliate against the whistleblower. From the start of the closed-door impeachment hearings through today, the Democratic approach has been consistent and simple. That strategy focuses on asking each witness three questions. One, did the president ask for foreign help to benefit his personal political interests by investigating the Bidens? Two, did the president personally or through others try to use the power of his office and other instruments of government to apply pressure on Ukraine to advance his personal political interests? And three, did the president and his administration try to hide information from Congress and the American people about his conduct? Steve Isley of Johnson County, Kansas, and millions of other Americans are now watching it all play out on TV. Salon.com's Bob Seska is also watching. Of course. Bob? Thanks, Buzz. Here's how irredeemably screwy the Trump Republicans have become. During Wednesday's public testimony in the impeachment of Donald Trump, a phrase I will never get sick of repeating... The House Intelligence Committee's Republican members attacked the inquiry for failing to produce witnesses with quote-unquote first-hand contact with Trump himself. That phrase, first-hand, was all over the proceedings as a way not to exculpate the president, but to cast doubt on the integrity of the committee's investigation. But here's one of the reasons why it's so screwy. Donald Trump has manufactured new articles of impeachment for himself by stonewalling Congress, by blocking the lawful subpoenas issued by the committee for testimony of officials who definitely have firsthand contact with the president and with the damning phone calls with Ukraine's President Zelensky. I'm sure Adam Schiff would be more than happy to depose first-hand witnesses from inside Trump's innermost circle of advisors, if only Trump were brave enough to allow his co-conspirators to do it. Instead, Trump is telegraphing his guilt by obstructing the impeachment proceedings, not using legal defense strategies, but by telling us exactly who has the most damning information with both Trump and Mick Mulvaney at the top of that list. Speaking of Trump himself, the rules allow for the president to testify, to defend himself, and to call his own witnesses anytime he wants. The only caveat, however, is that he needs to stop sandbagging the process. Along those lines, there was this exchange late in the day between gray alien Jim Jordan and Democratic Representative Peter Welsh. We will never get the chance to see the whistleblower raise his right hand, swear to tell the truth and nothing but the truth. We'll never get that chance. More importantly, the American people won't get that chance. This anonymous so-called whistleblower with no firsthand knowledge, who's biased against the president, who worked with Joe Biden, who is the reason we're all sitting here today, will never get a chance to question that individual. Democrats are trying to impeach the president based on all that, all that, 11 and a half months before an election. We'll not get to check out his credibility, his motivations, his bias. I said this last week, but this is this is a sad day. This is a sad day for this country. You think about what the Democrats have put our nation through for the last three years. Started July of 2016 when they spied on two American citizens associated with the presidential campaign and all that unfolded with the Mueller investigation after that. And when that didn't work, here we are based on this. Based on this is a the American people see through all this. They understand the facts support the president. They understand this process is unfair. 
and they see through the whole darn sham. With that, I yield back. Mr. Welch. Uh, thank you. I say to my colleague, I'd be glad to have uh, the, the person who started it all come in and testify. Uh, President Trump is welcome uh, to take a seat right there. It seems obvious to me that if Trump really wanted to clear his name, he'd agree to testify in public, but he won't because he'll appear colossally guilty. Presidents never testify in settings like that because it's considered beneath them. There's no bottom for Trump, on the other hand. There's no depth that's too chasmic for him to plumb. So why not do it? Well, there's this other problem. Trump always makes things worse for Trump. His attorneys, his advisors, they all know this, even though Trump himself doesn't. Point being, I suspect the president's lawyers, including Rudy Giuliani, would tackle him to the ground if he as much as pretended to take a walk to the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue. Ultimately, though, the strategy by the Trump Republicans during the first round of public hearings appears to have been confuse everybody. In addition to the deeply confusing first-hand nonsense, here's another example of how they're deliberately trying to gaslight the public. On one hand, the Trumpers on the committee and elsewhere are trying to say the July 25 phone call was perfect and that the president didn't do anything wrong. On the other hand, as Ben Shapiro said on his Wednesday show, they're saying there was absolutely a quid pro quo, but that Trump didn't show intent because he's too stupid to understand the law. The first thing suggests the call was clean, with zero indication of anything hinky, while the second thing suggests hinky, but unknowingly ignorantly hinky. Of course, Trump spent most of 2017 and 2018 screaming no collusion to anyone who would listen. So yes, Trump knows it's illegal to conspire with a foreign government to interfere in an election. How could he not? The plot involving Ukraine is just another version of the plot with Russia, both of which benefits the Kremlin, by the way, at the expense of both American and Ukrainian national security. For those of us who are dedicated to following all of this, we're capable of seeing right through the obviously desperate gibberish. Some casual viewers, including the poorly informed undecided demo, will only become frustrated by what they'll see as partisan hackery on both sides. This kind of frustration leads to categorical rejection of everyone involved, not just the Republican hacks. Categorical rejection leads to ambivalence, and ambivalence leads to a big fat nothing at the other end of all this. If it's all down to ambivalence, Trump quote-unquote wins, and that's the Republican goal. But I don't believe that'll happen this time, due primarily to the strength of the witnesses and the professional conduct of the Democrats. The only win, quote-unquote, for Trump will be a numerical one. As long as the Senate Republicans stick together, he'll wiggle out of this, but as a badly damaged and weakened incumbent. That's his best case scenario. That's as good as it gets for Trump. Worst case, if the hearings continue to be as solid as day one with Bill Taylor and George Kent, there's no telling how bad this could get for the president. And remember, resignation and a pardon from his successor is the only way he escapes prosecution. The headlines yesterday declared it to be impeachment day. But make no mistake, there are many more impeachment days yet to come. Keep on popping. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Get more of Mr. Seska at Salon.com, his Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at BobSeska.com. He'll have a fresh show this afternoon. I join Bob on his Tuesday shows. Signs of a cover-up in the Ukraine scandal won't be hard to find. 
Besides firing Marie Ivanovich to shut her up, Trump also reportedly wanted to fire the inspector general for the U.S. intelligence community after that official deemed the whistleblower's complaint to be credible. The New York Times reports that Trump was unhappy about that decision and about the public release of the whistleblower's complaint. Now he wants that inspector general, Michael Atkinson, to appear for questioning in these public impeachment hearings. Those around the president advised him it would be politically unwise to fire Atkinson, so after thinking about it, he never did. Trump is reportedly still thinking about firing his acting White House chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney. Once again, aides are advising the president against this, even though they too are aghast that Mulvaney told reporters nearly a month ago that there was a this-for-that military aid and a White House visit for Ukraine in exchange for help with Trump's political career. Quoting one of the three sources for this Washington Post story, that was a very bad day for the president. But aides warned Trump that firing Mulvaney could be as disastrous as his firing of John Bolton, who's now a much-desired witness for the Democrats. Mulvaney has vacillated between being willing to testify with the right court ruling and refusing to testify at all, now perhaps to save his job if he can. Trump's advisors are telling him that he should hold off on firing Mick Mulvaney at least until after the impeachment vote next month. And then there's Vice President Mike Pence, who met with Ukraine's president face-to-face on September 1st. Pence's involvement in the Ukraine scandal manifested in yet another transcript, this one from a Pence news conference in Ukraine in which he called on Zelensky to do more to, quote, fight corruption, while telling him that his much-needed military aid was still mm, under review. Testimony has made clear the meaning of fighting corruption, hurt Joe Biden, and absolve Russia of interference in the 2016 election. It still isn't clear whether Pence had read the whistleblower's report when he said these things, just as it's unclear whether he'd read the transcript of the July 25th call. It would be surprising if he hadn't. One of his top advisors testified in a closed-door session that she had listened to the call and had made her five-page transcript of it available to Pence in a matter of hours and days before his trip to Ukraine. But it is clear that Pence obeyed when Trump instructed him not to attend Zelensky's inauguration as expected, as the U.S. president held out for a little something more from Ukraine. And Pence obeyed when Trump dispatched him to Ukraine to deliver a face-to-face message that no investigation of the Bidens and 2016 meant that the expected military aid might not come. While Pence appears to be another soldier in the president's efforts to bribe or extort Ukraine, he is also the vice president the first in line to replace a president who was removed or resigned. House impeachment investigators subpoenaed a massive number of documents from Pence to get the facts and to look for signs of a cover-up. But that subpoena, like others to this administration, is being ignored, which Democrats consider part of their obstruction of justice, obstruction of Congress article of impeachment. Meanwhile, Mike Pence appears to be another possible fall guy, It did not surprise anyone that the book A Warning by Anonymous, due out this coming Tuesday, would describe Trump as cruel, inept, and a danger to the nation. What we had not heard before is a claim that, had there been a majority in the cabinet in favor of it, Mike Pence would have supported invoking the 25th Amendment, which allows for the removal of an unfit president. Pence denies this. What we had not heard before from this senior White House official is that a number of senior officials considered resigning en masse last year as, quote, a midnight self-massacre. 
Instead, they decided to stay, to continue to try to rein in the president described in this book. Mostly, they worried that their mass departure would further destabilize a government already leaning in that direction. A warning is certainly a colorful read, describing Trump as, quote, like a 12-year-old in an air traffic control tower, pushing the buttons of government indiscriminately, indifferent to the planes skidding across the runway and the flights frantically diverting away from the airport. The author writes from what he or she claims is first-hand experience and claims that other past and present administration officials feel exactly the same way. The author writes about senior White House officials awakening on many mornings in a full-blown panic over something the president had tweeted that morning from his upstairs residence. They had to figure out, by the time he came downstairs to the Oval Office, how to carry out the president's threats and promises, or how to squelch them. Much of what Anonymous writes confirms what we already knew or suspected, but the author walks back the claim that he or she made in that piece in the New York Times a year ago. Quote, I was wrong about the quiet resistance inside the Trump administration. Unelected bureaucrats and cabinet appointees were never going to steer Trump in the right direction, concluding he is who he is. Hence the title of the book, A Warning. Last night, a federal appeals court ruled Congress can get eight years of Trump's tax returns. A ruling presidential lawyer, Jay Sekulow, vows will be challenged before the United States Supreme Court. It was in this past week that a New York state judge ordered Trump to pay $2 million to a list of genuine nonprofit charities. The case was about his fake charity, the Trump Foundation, which used other people's donations to settle lawsuits, buy a huge oil portrait of Trump, and to illegally donate to his own 2016 campaign and to the election campaign of Florida's then-Attorney General Pam Bondi. Fun fact... Pam Bondi is now a key player in the White House when it comes to defending Trump against impeachment. She's the first in a team of new lawyers for the president. Other fun fact, Trump swore last year in a tweet, quote, I won't settle this case. Now he has, and it's costing him $2 million. That money will go to the Army's Emergency Relief Fund, the United Negro College Fund, the Holocaust Memorial in D.C., and Meals on Wheels, to name a few. The rest of the week's news, plus why we hiccup, Bigfoot is missing, and the 43-year-old Twinkie in the final segment after this. As briefly as possible, this is the part where I set out the tip jar to help cover expenses. If you'd like to help this independent journalism effort at this important time in history, please click the PayPal Donate button on the upper right at buzzburbank.com or on your phone just below the title Buzz Burbank News and Comment. And there's still an Amazon button on my page. If you're shopping Amazon anyway, going through my page and bookmarking that still helps. Thank you so much to those of you who actively support this independent news. In other news, the U.S. Supreme Court has cleared the way for a lawsuit by the families of the Sandy Hook victims against Remington, the company that made the gun used to slaughter young school children in 2012. Remington lost its bid to get the case thrown out, and that's a big blow to the gun industry. This week's ruling could open the door for other families and survivors to sue the makers of guns used in their cases. A 2005 law protects gun makers from wrongful death suits, but the Sandy Hook families targeted instead the company's marketing strategy. The company had advertised the gun as 
designed as a military weapon engineered to deliver maximum carnage. That's a quote from the Remington ad. Colt, which manufactures a similar rifle known as the AR-15, says it has stopped making them for the consumer market. Immigration. While we await a Supreme Court decision on the DACA program for Dreamers, we learned this week the U.S. took into custody a record number of migrant children in 2019, nearly 70,000. Health officials continue to worry about the psychological effects of U.S. detention of these children. Some of the kids have gone missing. Some have already been deported. A three-year-old girl was sexually abused in her foster home. And thousands of others remain in institutional shelters. Some cry and hit their heads against the wall. And more kids arrive every week. And none of them are getting psychological help. And for asylum seekers, we learned that we've gone from letting 97% of the applicants continue their pursuit after a first hearing. 97%, that's down to 10% now. The U.S. is now denying a second hearing to 90% of all asylum applicants. The Trump administration has turned the asylum system upside down, reducing our mercy for those fleeing violence and persecution to nearly none. Quoting an immigrant rights lawyer at Columbia Law School, this seems to be based on secret policies and procedures that have not been made public by the administration. Says another, this administration is trying to end asylum in the United States. The architect of Trump's immigration policy is Stephen Miller. Democratic Congresswoman Elon Omar took a lot of heat this year from conservatives when she accused Miller of being a white nationalist. But it appears she was right. This week, the Southern Poverty Law Center released 900 emails from Miller indicating he'd promoted white nationalism, anti-immigrant rhetoric, and other extremist right-wing ideas through the conservative website Breitbart. The Law Center is drawing upon nearly a 1,000 emails Miller sent to a Breitbart writer during the 2016 campaign. The emails show Trump advisor Stephen Miller focused on ideas that include white genocide, a conspiracy theory often spouted by white supremacists. At least three members of Congress are now calling for Miller's resignation. Elon Omar is one of them. In climate news, the Trump EPA is moving to limit the amount of science that can be factored into U.S. policies on public health and environmental regulations. Among other things, the new EPA rules would require scientists and researchers to share confidential medical records that they had examined in reaching their conclusions. That will make it harder to enact clean air and water rules because a lot of these studies rely on that personal medical information which is gathered with confidentiality agreements. And the new rules apply retroactively to past studies freeing the EPA to roll back even more environmental rules. The U.S. Supreme Court is also hearing this week a case that squares off the Trump administration and environmental activists over sewage wastewater being allowed to flow into the waters off the coast of Hawaii's Maui Island. And the red tide has returned to Sarasota and Naples on the west coast of Florida's southern tip. After a red tide scourge that lasted from 2017 through 2018, the waters returned to normal. But the deadly algae began to appear again about a month ago. Scientists say they don't know where the tide is heading next or how long it'll be around. Red tides are often the result of warm water and fertilizer runoff. The result is a massive die-off of sea life. 
It tends to dissipate in cooler water and cooler weather, but these algae blooms have in recent years been appearing more often and lasting longer than they once did. Climate change gets the blame, as do this week's record cold temperatures across much of the U.S. and new flooding in Venice. To your health, there were 600 new cases of the flu reported last week and two more deaths from the flu. Louisiana and Puerto Rico remain the top hot spots, but there are reports as well from Arizona, Georgia, Idaho, Indiana, Kentucky, Mississippi, Nevada, Tennessee, and Texas. One of this week's flu deaths was in suburban Detroit. Local experts in Nevada are predicting a more severe flu virus this year, and health officials are still urging shots and lots of hand-washing. A federal judge has struck down the Trump administration's policy of allowing medical professionals to refuse to treat certain patients based on religious or moral beliefs. This so-called conscience rule would have allowed individuals in the healthcare field to deny treatment to those who want, as examples, abortions, sterilization, or sex reassignment surgery. The judge declared the rule illegal, arbitrary, and an abuse of discretion. The Trump administration plans to appeal the judge's decision. And a whistleblower at Google claims that company has amassed confidential medical information from 50 million Americans while transferring that data from Ascension, one of the nation's biggest health care providers. The whistleblower says this is data from people who have not given their consent and that patients should be able to opt out of the data mining program. And this week, scientists may have figured out why we hiccup. A study of newborn babies found that hiccups are triggered by a brain wave that regulates our breathing. Scientists surmise that in newborns, their bodies are being trained to monitor their breathing muscles as nerve circuits connect. They surmise that the sound is to make us aware of our diaphragms. Babies hiccup a lot. And the study found that premature babies hiccup a total of about 15 minutes a day. Entertainment news. Canadian-born classic rocker Neil Young turned 74 yesterday as he continues to work for U.S. citizenship. Young passed the citizenship test but admitted his marijuana use, which has him now facing another additional test. That second test was added by former Attorney General Jeff Sessions. It questions the moral character of those who partake, even in states where marijuana use is legal. Midway is the top movie this week and another soft week for theaters. For all the movies, previews, theaters, showtimes, and tickets, please click through the Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. Dan Aykroyd has confirmed that Bill Murray and other originals are on board for a sequel called Ghostbusters 2020. Wheel of Fortune host Pat Sajak underwent emergency bowel surgery one week ago today. The 73-year-old's hosting duties have for now been assumed by co-host Vanna White, Sajak is said to be recovering from that operation. And the results are in. Matchbox Cars, Magic the Gathering, and Coloring Books made this year's Toy Hall of Fame. The finalists included Care Bears, Jenga, The Fisher-Price Corn Popper, Masters of the Universe, My Little Pony, Nerf Blaster, The Board Game Risk, A Spinning Top, and The Smartphone. Winner, Matchbox Cars, by the way, debuted in England in 1953. The Toy Hall of Fame is in Rochester, New York. The Hostess Twinkie that's been on display at a school in Maine is now 43 years older than the day it was unwrapped by a science teacher to make a point about food preservatives. Although it has lost its bright yellow luster, the 43-year-old Twinkie has not shrunk, 
rotted, or disintegrated. The teacher who now keeps the Twinkie on display was a student of that original science teacher 43 years ago. The worry was waffles in Birmingham, Alabama. It was very, very early Sunday morning, a high holy day at waffle houses across the country, and there was only one worker behind the counter. A fellow named Ethan Crispo says he arrived at the restaurant to find that that one man was trying to serve a crowd of hungry customers, many of whom had been out drinking late Saturday night. Mr. Crispo says suddenly one customer stood up and asked the employee for an apron and went to work. Soon, other customers were jumping in to bus tables and wash dishes. Waffle House says it appreciates the volunteer spirit that it prefers its employees do the work, and it has since addressed its scheduling problem. In Hilton Head, South Carolina, a man went to McDonald's for a sweet tea with light ice and extra lemon. But the beverage in his cup tasted odd. The man says he now understands extra lemon was code for marijuana which he had never tasted before. He says he found three bags of it in his iced tea and realized he was, quote, high as a kite. The man says he paid regular price for the sweet tea. McDonald's says it's cooperating with law enforcement. Last Friday, people were getting confusing messages and texting with people they hadn't texted in ages. If you're one of the people who awoke to unexpected text messages last Friday morning, we now know why. Telecom vendor Cineverse had a server failure back in February that kept hundreds of thousands of texts from being delivered. Friday, 10 months later, they were finally delivered, all of them, all 170,000 of them. A California woman was surprised to hear from an ex-boyfriend she had stopped contacting. He got one from her, too. Night before last, the Manhattan City Commission removed the female breast from things banned in the New York Berg's nudity ordinance. Commissioners unanimously agreed to decriminalize topless women to stop the lawsuits filed by women activists from the group Free the Nipple. Manhattan's nudity ordinance still bans any display of genitals or buttocks, the latter rule meaning no thongs, G-strings, or T-back swimsuit bottoms or men or women. If a convicted prisoner sentenced to life dies briefly and is then revived, does that mean he's through serving his life sentence? An Iowa inmate argued just that after his heart stopped five times on March 30 of 2015 in a hospital near the Iowa State Pen near Fort Madison. The next month, the inmate filed for release, but a judge has since ruled that since he is still among the living, he has to keep living that sentence. In Wachula, Florida, a 33-year-old orangutan has settled into her new digs at the Center for Great Apes. Sandra the orangutan was born in Germany and spent 25 years at the zoo in Buenos Aires before moving to Florida a little over a week ago following a brief quarantine at the Sedgwick County Zoo in Wichita, Kansas. Sandra got sprung from the Argentinian Zoo after a court case there granted her personhood a ruling that, as a great ape, she has some human rights, according to that court ruling in Argentina. Animals, ruled the judge, are sentient beings, and the first right they have is our obligation to respect them. And finally, from the home office in Boynton Beach, Florida, police are looking for Bigfoot. 
An eight-foot-tall, 300-pound statue of Sasquatch has been stolen from its spot in front of a store called Mattress Monsters. Monsters spelled with a Z. Bigfoot is missing, tweeted the cops. They say, if you know anything about this, to call one of their detectives and tell them you know the whereabouts of Bigfoot. Operators are standing by. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and your support through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by the Realm Network.